Welcome to the Research and Focus podcast. I'm Susan O'Neill, the Associate Dean Academic and Research for the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. This podcast focuses on in-depth interviews and conversations with our faculty members on their research activities and the impacts of their work locally and worldwide. How do we improve thinking and problem solving in the classroom? What is a thinking classroom? Hi, I'm Marquez, and welcome to episode 4 of the Researching Focus podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Peter Lillidal, who talked about his research on vertical non-permanent surface and visibly random grouping as effective practice for building aspects of a thinking classroom. Enjoy! So can you tell us a little bit about your academic background? Um, so I have, I have all my schooling is from Simon Fraser University, actually. I have a uh, bachelor's degree with a major in mathematics and a minor in computing science. Uh, after that, I did a PDP teaching certificate from SFU, and then I went off and I worked in the field as a teacher for several years. I came back and I was accepted to do a master's in mathematics, secondary mathematics education here at SFU, a program that I now coordinate. Um, Partway through that program, I was asked by my supervisor to transfer to the PhD, which I did after I had completed all the coursework for the master's. Mm -hmm. And then I did a PhD here in uh, curriculum, curriculum theory and implementation with a focus on mathematics education. And that was prior to us having our math education doctoral program here. Oh, okay. Uh, and then at completion, there was a retirement in the faculty. Tom O'Shea retired, and mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a call, and I applied, and I uh, was a successful candidate. Oh, nice. Since then, I've been here as uh, working my way through the ranks as an assistant, associate, and now full professor. And I've also mm-hmm. worked as, um, this is my second stint as associate dean in the faculty of education. I've also worked as associate dean of the, in uh, dean of grad studies office for six years. Mm-hmm. You sound very busy. I'm a very yeah. busy guy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, in your article, Building Thinking Classrooms, um, condition for problem solving. Um, can you tell us a little bit more what is the, uh, uh, the thinking classroom? So um, a thinking classroom is a reaction to the types of classrooms I was witnessing um, out in the lower mainland, the types of mathematics classrooms that were dominant, dominated by um, lecture by the the teacher, lots of note-taking, very passive participation of the students, where the students were, by and large, not thinking. Uh, not, at least not thinking in the mathematical ways that we want students to think. So the thinking classroom was uh, the result of a, of a massive 15-year research project in which I tried to find... Uh, mechanisms by which we could transform these largely passive environments into thinking environments and having the students engaged in mathematics and mathematical thinking in the ways that we, and by we I mean almost all math teachers had envisioned for them Mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was a a transformative way of 
teaching math, mathematics, and yes, okay. What yeah. was the, uh, the the problem that you saw that you would be? So the way this all started, I was asked by a grade seven eight teacher to help her implement problem solving in her classroom. I, I misunderstood that to mean that she wanted me to collaborate with her on introducing problem solving in the classroom. What, what she really wanted was me just to provide her with problems. Okay. And her impetus was from the pressure on the curriculum at the time to start implementing problem solving and to teach problem solving and teach through problem solving in the math classrooms. Um, I gave her problems to use, but on the condition that I get to watch her implement them. Um, to say that it was problematic is an understatement. These, there was a, it was an unmitigated disaster. Oh, wow. uh, the students just immediately put up their hands. They, they asked a million questions. Mm. Uh, the teacher was frantic and running around trying to help them. Mm. And I, we tried this for three days, and every day it got worse. Wow. So after that experience, I asked if I could stay. I stayed, and I sat, and I watched her teach. Mm -hmm. And after three days, two realizations came to me. The first realization was that at no point in the previous three days had I seen the students be expected to think. Okay. Uh, there was lots of activity, mm -hmm. a lot of what I would call mimicking, mm -hmm. and but very little actual requirement to think. The second realization I had was that the teacher was planning or teaching on the assumption that students either couldn't or wouldn't think. Okay. So it was creating this sort of vicious cycle. The mm. students weren't thinking, the teacher was planning or teaching on the assumption that the students either couldn't or wouldn't think, which allowed the students to not think. Yeah. So I left that classroom and I, I visited 40 other classrooms. Mm -hmm where I saw the same thing over and over and over and over again. Um, the other thing I realized in visiting those 40 classrooms was that classrooms are more alike than they are different. Okay. So yeah, there was differences between classrooms. A, a primary classroom looks different than a secondary classroom. Mm -hmm. But there was also a lot of things that looked alike. Mm -hmm. And... The impetus for my research into the thinking classroom was recognizing that maybe there was a relationship between these two observations. Mm -hmm. The observation that classrooms are more alike than they are different mm -hmm. and the realization that everywhere I go I saw this non-thinking passive behavior. Mm -hmm. So my first foray into the thinking classroom was to start to experiment with the aspects of classrooms that are common to all classrooms rather than the things that are different to all classrooms. Okay. So in the same article, um, the Building Thinking Classroom Conditions for Problem Solving, you stated that one teacher stood her classroom tapes on the end to achieve the effect of the non-permanent surface. Um, what is the, the vertical non-permanent surfaces and how it is um, so effective in improving thinking and problem solving? When I started exploring uh, these commonalities, these, these things that were common between all classrooms, um, what emerged from that research was that there was 14, I call them moments, but they, you could consider them 14 elements of classrooms that seem to be common across all classrooms. So for example, all classrooms, the teacher has students do a task. Mm -hmm. um, 
that's an element, that's a moment that happens in a lesson. Um, other things are that teacher answers questions. Um, the way a room is organized with desks or tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, the student workspace, the students where they work. These are, these are aspects that seem to be common across all classrooms. Mm-hmm. So the student workspace, by and large, is the desk or the table where students sit. Mm-hmm. Um, in the research to try to break away from these passive environments, um, I took what I call the contrarian approach, which was that as I entered the research into one of these elements of a classroom, mm-hmm. I often started off by doing research on the effect of having the exact opposite situation from okay. what the students are familiar with. Mm-hmm. So students are familiar to doing their work sitting in their desks, mm-hmm. um, often in solitary sometimes collaboratively, and working in notebooks and so on. So the using the contrarian approach, the exact opposite of this space is to have them standing. Mm-hmm. And rather than writing in notebooks, which are permanent or semi-permanent, writing on non-permanent surfaces. Mm-hmm. So the most commonly available one is whiteboards. Yeah. So we had students standing in groups working on whiteboards rather than sitting in mm-hmm. desks working in notebooks. Um, this became a this turned out to have a very big effect on the way students engaged and the kind of thinking and and the fact that they were thinking mathematically and bringing that to the the problem at hand Um, so at first the research really just referred to students standing and working on whiteboards Mm -hmm. but Whiteboards are a limited commodity in many classrooms. So Mm -hmm. teachers that I worked with started to innovate. When they started to see the effect of this, they started to innovate and find alternatives to whiteboards. Mm -hmm. And what was the salient feature of the whiteboards was the non-permanence, the fact that the students could erase it easily. Mm -hmm. So what they were looking for in particular were spaces that could be made or were or could be made to be vertical and that were non-permanent. Uh, the example you cited was a teacher who found that almost all student tables are non-permanent to some degree, and by yeah. standing them up, they became vertical. Yeah. We had teachers writing on windows, teachers bringing in artifacts or, or alternative surfaces, such as vinyl picnic table covers, shower curtains, whatever they could find to put up on their walls mm-hmm. that allowed them to be both vertical and non-permanent. So rather than talking about whiteboards, the research shifted to talking about vertical non-permanent surfaces. Now, in answer to your second question, what is it about it that makes it so effective for breaking out of this passivity that the students experience? Mm -hmm. There was a number of elements to it. The first one being that it's non-permanent. Now, with it being non-permanent, it's easily erasable. The students were quicker to risk and they were willing to risk more. The fact that they could easily erase it was freeing to them and allowed them to to start to get to work right away, to try mm-hmm. things, to venture, to experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, they rarely erase, even when they make mistakes. They tend to only erase when they run out of room. The second element that we could say that made it effective, oh, I should come back to it, that the first one... Mm-hmm. Um, we know this is one of the reasons why it was effective because we were interviewing students and finding out what it was they were thinking and liking about these surfaces. Okay. The second element that makes it effective is the fact that 
physiologically, they're in a more active stance. So standing is active is more active than sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, we could go into the ergonomics of it. We can go into the the physiological research around the negative effects of sitting. Mm-hmm. But it turned out that the main reason that standing was so effective was that it wasn't that standing was so effective. It was that sitting was so bad. Oh, I see. And through the interviews with the students and through the observations and and through the data gathering, what emerged very clearly was that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. Yeah. And when they feel anonymous, they are more likely to disengage. Yeah. And it turns out that the further away they're sitting from the teacher and the more th- objects, students, other desks, and so on, that are between the teacher and the student, mm-hmm. the more anonymous they feel. Okay. So this is why we see this effect of students disengaging more when they're further back in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, having them stand and work on these non-permanent surfaces served the two purposes then. It created a surface in, at which they would risk more. Mm-hmm. And it took away that sense of anonymity. Okay. And, and, and it's proving to be one of the most powerful um, tools, we could say, one of the most powerful pedagogical moves a teacher can make for generating uh, activity in the classroom. And it also sounds very dynamic. It is very dynamic. And there's other elements to it, too, which feed into other aspects of the tools. But one of the big things that it does is it allows the, teach, the students to see other students work and to use what other groups are doing to scaffold uh, their own work. Yeah. It also allows a teacher to see at a glance what is happening in the classroom. And they immediately see disengagement. They immediately see where students are struggling. They immediately see where students are done. Yeah. And they're able to take action appropriately. Yeah, yeah the process of thinking as well yeah. because they are erasing and how they're shifting. Yeah their attention and all their work is visible so you see yeah. as a teacher immediately what's happening yeah and you were saying about the visibility of the work yeah i'm picturing the classroom and seeing the students seeing each other's yeah. work it's also very interactive and yes it is yeah um so, so building on, on the previous study uh, you conducted another one on the uptake by teachers on the idea of visibility, uh, sorry, visibly random grouping. Uh, what is visibly random grouping and how it can be an effective practice for bu- building aspects of thinking classroom? So whereas the vertical non-permanent surfaces is sort of the most visible aspect of this framework, when you walk down the hall and you see a 30 students standing at whiteboards, it's very clear that things are different. Mm -hmm. The visibly random groups is one of the more invisible but more powerful aspects of the framework. So visibly random groups is is the reaction to, it's a contrary reaction to how groups are normally formed. So the dominant grouping strategies used in elementary classroom is what I came to call strategic grouping. So strategic grouping happens uh, most often in elementary classrooms at the beginning of every month where students are put into new groups and they will work in those groups for the rest of the month. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elementary teachers group their students strategically according to a number of different strategies. So they either group them strategically in order to uh, minimize uh, misbehavior, 
maximize productivity, minimize socialization, in some cases for some students to increase socialization. So they had these strategic grouping methods. Um, secondary teachers tend not to use strategic grouping at all and allow the students to work with whoever they want. So in both environments, I needed to find something that was contrary to that, keeping mm -hmm. with my contrary approach. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that emerged very quickly as contrary to both of those was to do random groupings. And the way random groupings work is that um, the students are put into groups. Mm -hmm. It turned out that groups of three were optimal, except for in primary, where groups of two show, proved to be optimal. Um, but to, to create these groupings randomly. Mm -hmm. uh, early on in the research, it turned out that random was not um, sufficient. It turned out it had to be visibly random. The students had to see that it was random. The students are used to being grouped according to strategies. And when the randomness was invisible to them, they assumed they were being grouped strategically mm. and they weren't as responsive to it. Mm -hmm. When they saw that the randomness was there, either through a random generator on the computer or through some random generating algorithm or method where they picked a card or picked a popsicle stick or whatever it was mm -hmm. the teacher chose, um, they, they were much more quickly willing to allow themselves to engage with the other students in that group. Um, the other thing that emerged out of this was that the, the groupings had to be frequent. Mm -hmm. So uh, as opposed to in elementary school where it's done monthly, mm -hmm. predominantly, mm -hmm. this had to be done daily. Okay. So uh, every day the students were put into a new random group mm -hmm. and there was resistance at first, but after mm -hmm. three weeks or so, we saw massive transformations in the, in the culture in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Every teacher I've ever worked with has talked about wanting to build safe environments in their classrooms. Mm -hmm. They've talked about um, wanting to have a community in their classroom. Mm -hmm. And every teacher that's participated in this has declared that random groupings by far produces classrooms that are safe mm -hmm. and increases community better than any other tool. Yeah. What random groupings does is it breaks down the social barriers within the room mm -hmm. and, and allows the student to start to be willing to work with anybody. Yeah. And when this starts to happen, one of the byproducts is mobility of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the ideas start to move not only within a group, but between groups. Yeah. Because everybody has worked with everybody else yeah. after a very short period of time. Yeah. It is the engine that drives the thinking classroom framework. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of mobility yeah. um, transferring knowledge among the groups and also that building community. It's very yeah. um, visible in this, in this yeah. situation. So it, it and the research paper that you referred to was an mm -hmm. intensive case study of spending weeks and weeks and weeks in a classroom mm -hmm. uh, in a school that was racially bifurcated. Oh, yeah. So it was a school that where there was, by and large, 50% Asian and 50% Caucasian students. And, and in this school, there was actually two, two discrete student bodies. Mm -hmm. And watching how these barriers were breaking down mm -hmm. over time, over relatively short periods of time, as the random groups were implemented. Yeah. It, it is the tool in the thinking classroom framework.
that generates the tolerance and the collaborative skills that are necessary for the rest of the framework to work. And which makes sense because you're inviting your students to be discomfort on being safe on the groups that they already know mm -hmm. and getting to get to know everybody else and creating that classroom unit instead of subgroups. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've been talking um, a lot about uh, contrarying a framework of mm -hmm. your um, studies. Um, and it, it seems like most of the work is it's shifting the traditional ways of thinking about classrooms. So I'm assuming that you might have faced lots of challenges. Can you tell us a little bit of the challenges of your projects? So, well, so this is what's interesting. So the challenges were, of course, there was challenges, but there was far less than you would think. Okay. Uh, the teachers that I worked with, and there was over 400 of them over a 15-year span, all had an innate sense that there was something wrong mm. in their classrooms. Okay. So this notion of, of disrupting the mm. traditions was, was not met with as much resistance okay. as, as you would think. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was this sense that change needed to happen. Yeah. And because most of these teachers had attempted to find mm solutions to these problems without mm -hmm. success, they were very open to, to trying different things. Mm -hmm. um, at another level, there was a lot of these m things that we were doing that in intuitively resonated with teachers as being effective because mm -hmm. they had seen it, they had maybe encountered it occasionally in their practice previously. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there was resistance by students. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of resistance to random groups to begin with, mm -hmm. very little resistance to vertical non-permanent surfaces. Mm -hmm. uh, the students were, by and large, celebrating when we stopped doing notes in the traditional way. Mm -hmm. um, there was some parent pushback in some situations. So, so resistance was met in, in various areas. Mm -hmm. um, the largest The two places where the resistance was met the greatest was one was within the research, and it had to do with notes. Um, I did a study where I looked at student behavior during note-taking in math classrooms, mm -hmm. and the results were, were not very mm -hmm. promising. Okay. What they were showing was that Disengagement was rampant while they were taking their notes, and less than 10% of the students actually referred back to their notes. So we needed mm -hmm. to come up with an improvement. Mm -hmm. The contrarian approach was, at the time, if, if notes aren't working, let's just stop doing notes. Yeah. Students loved that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the problem was, as an answer to the ineffectiveness of notes, this was problematic. A lot of teachers resisted the notion of giving up notes entirely. Mm. And for a long time, the notion of no notes didn't exist in the framework for that reason. It mm. was the, the purpose of the framework was to offer teachers um, mechanisms by which to transform their passive classrooms into more active ones. Mm -hmm. But the no notes uh, situation was very intimidating to them. Mm -hmm. um, It wasn't until we found an improvement on this in the, in the context of what we came to call meaningful notes, and I won't go into all the details about it, mm -hmm. that 
it found its way into the framework because teachers saw this as a viable and um, uh, acceptable alternative. Mm -hmm. Whereas no notes was not seen as yeah. an acceptable alternative. So the second challenge that I've been that I've met has to do with how I turn this research into outputs. Um, there is a there's a well understood and well um, accepted understanding in math education research that there is no theory of teaching. Mm. Um, there are theories of learning, mm -hmm. but there are no theories of teaching, and 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 this is this is correct. Um, and my work can often be misconstrued as as theories of teaching. Uh, I view it more as theories for teaching. Mm. So when I theorize about the results of the research and output them, what I'm offering is first and foremost the results of the research, mm -hmm. but also uh, a way to think theoretically for teaching. How mm -hmm. do we think about this results through research, through theory, mm -hmm. to understand and, and look at how it, it can inform our teaching? Would you say that it's a tool for teaching? It is definitely a tool for teaching. Okay. So the uptake has been massive within the teacher community mm -hmm. across Canada and now in the U.S. into Italy, Sweden, Norway. Okay. Um, it's having it's having very strong inroads into teaching practice and the way teachers think about their practice and the lenses with which they bring to. Uh, their classroom. It's a huge impact on the educational community. Then. Yes, it's a very big mm -hmm. impact on the educational community. Mm -hmm. But I'm an academic, so I'm also trying to find ways to move this into the academic realm. Okay. And I'm having success with that as well. I'm mm -hmm. able to output the research, but it's an ongoing process. And there's, the amount of research and the amount of results far exceeds mm -hmm. my ability to have been able to turn it into a uh, publishable materials. Yeah. So I have I have more things to write. Mm -hmm. So uh, speaking of, where are you right now with your studies? And so the framework has pretty much completed. The research on the framework, I would say, is in its final phases now. Mm -hmm. um, when the article you referred to earlier, there was nine tools. The framework expanded from nine to 11, and it's now at 14 tools. There's really not more to see in that perspective. What I'm doing most of my time now is I'm spending time in classrooms where the teachers are implementing this framework. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing how, how the framework, when manifest in classrooms, is having is, or is emerging new ideas. And that's how one of the tools around fostering autonomous actions emerged, actually. Um, I'm also exploring a lot the, what's happening with the sequencing of the implementation of the tools. So initially, when the, when the tools started to emerge, I explored the sequence that teachers were finding most optimal for implementing. And when I say teachers, I mean teachers new to the framework mm -hmm. and students new to the experience of the framework. Mm -hmm. What I'm looking at now is the sequence in which teachers are implementing this framework when they're experienced with the framework, but they're now faced with a group of new students who are mm -hmm. not experienced with the framework. And the results, recent results, are sort of emerging uh, a pattern. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 
I'm starting the process. I'm talking with publishers now about they've several publishers have approached me about writing the book of building thinking classrooms. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm starting to negotiate that right now. I have mm-hmm. an admin leave coming up, and I'm going to be sitting down and writing this book, building yeah. thinking classrooms. Um, I'm also engaged a lot in the research now on how this framework broadens from the math context to other contexts because mm-hmm. there are teachers in every subject area at every grade implementing yeah. this framework and I'm and and there's adaptations needed mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm really enjoying mm-hmm. working with non-math teachers to yeah. to explore the 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 variances that they bring to that and the innovations that they bring to it. Mm-hmm. Um and as I'm going along, I'm also starting, I'm, I'm writing up pieces of the research and outputting them. The next one I'm working on is um, the, the types of questions that students ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the pieces of research was about how to answer students' questions. Mm-hmm. And, and that part of the research involved me spending a lot of time in classrooms looking at the types of questions that students ask Mm -hmm. and and building broad categories because once we understand the types of questions students ask it's much easier to start to think about how we should answer questions Mm -hmm. so that's the next piece of research that i want to write up and that one i'm writing up specifically for a teacher journal Mm -hmm. because this one is so influential broadly for teacher activity yeah it's interesting that you're moving from the the mathematics to a, a broader teaching mm-hmm. experience uh, would be beneficial for all teachers in yeah. any kind of subject. I've seen, I've seen a teacher in Ottawa just make magic with this framework in a grade nine English class. Oh, wow. And yes, I'm, I'm, this, this is a part that I'm really, really enjoying. Mm-hmm. And the publisher are already talking to me about the potential of a second book Mm-hmm. on building thinking classrooms more writ large outside yeah. of the mathematics classroom. Yeah. So we'll see if that ever comes about. Mm-hmm. I haven't even written the first book. I'm not yeah, thinking about I'm trying second. not to think about what the second book will okay. be. Okay. Well, um, just for curiosity, you're talking about the vertical uh, surface, non-permanent yeah. surfaces. Would you see the, uh, the use of technology uh, being implemented in this technique as well? Is it something possible what do you think so technology is something that is ever present in this framework but technology is occupying the role of servant yeah within this within this framework so technology exists in the way the teachers are capturing the student work it exists exists in the way the students themselves are capturing the work Uh, it serves as a tool in the students exploration whether they are graphing using Mm -hmm. graphing software or Mm -hmm. They're doing simple calculations with calculators. Yeah. It's how the students capture their own work using mm-hmm. photographs, mm-hmm. video, yeah. audio. Yeah. So it's, it's almost ever-present. It's ubiquitous in this environment, yeah. but it, in all cases it serves as a servant. Okay. Um, which is in many ways antithetical to some of the initiatives that we're seeing in districts mm-hmm. where technology is taking on a much more prominent role Mm -hmm. and that's not to say that i'm anti-technology at all i'm not it's Mm -hmm. really about how we leverage technology as a way to improve the face-to-face collaborative environment yeah um one of the things that 
happens is when I do workshops on this, every once in a while I encounter people who work uh, in environments where they're delivering content at a distance. Mm -hmm. And I'm challenging them to think about how technology can help them Mm -hmm. to enhance the collaborative experience Mm -hmm. in ways that the research has proven Mm -hmm. to work in the classroom. But up until now, the environment we're finding the most powerful is still the face-to-face environment. And this research is really about how to enhance that. Yeah. It, it looks like it. it's a, about the community. It's about the engagement, yeah. the connection among peers and you know, how teachers can be involved in that process as well. Yeah. yeah. So a, as a researcher and a scholar, um, and this is more on a personal level, uh, what, what have you learned uh, from this whole experience? Um, well, you know, I, I was a classroom teacher. I love being in classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm learning, well, I don't know if I'm learning this. I've known this, but it's, but it's being reified for me over and over and over again, which is the innovative capacity of teachers to take ideas such as the ones that are emerging from this research and, and adapt and modify and extend and make better Mm-hmm. within their particular context. Mm-hmm. And that is, for me, a powerful, powerful lesson to keep in mind that, that whatever research outputs I, I offer, mm-hmm. they're only suggestions for teachers to think about. Now, yeah. we, the research is showing some very optimal ways to implement, but at the same time, every time I say I think I found the optimal, a teacher shows me that there's a different way or a better way to do it. I think the other thing that I've really learned is that it is actually possible to break away what I call institutionally normative structures of Mm -hmm. of classrooms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to build an alternative to what classrooms can be and that these alternatives can behave and be very different spaces Mm -hmm. for students to engage in their their learning. And... I don't necessarily think I've found the only way that that can be constructed, but I'm more convinced now than ever that we have to break away from these institutionally normative structures. There are things in our educational practices that have not changed in over 100 Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, that's true. We need a version 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. you're planting the seed, yeah. <laughs> and it seems that it's being very fruitful. But in, all, but in all of these classrooms that I envision for the future, the teacher is very relevant, yeah. Yeah. needs to be very present, mm-hmm. and, this, and the face-to-face is still the dominant learning yeah. space. Well, uh, Professor, thank you very much for um, participating in our podcast today. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Research in Focus podcast is produced by the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. Stay up to date on the faculty by visiting our research website at sfu.ca slash education slash research and focus and by subscribing to us on iTunes. Thank you for listening.